Welcome back. David Penn here for the Professor Penn Podcast, episode number 92. Cook the Books. We're calling this one Cook the Books. I'm recording this on, let me get this right, Monday morning, February 5th. It's going to post up on Thursday evening, February 8th at 7.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. Welcome back. Uh, I know we got a lot of new people coming in, and we appreciate you checking us out. Uh, as I said on Tuesday night, not about labels. I'm not about fighting. I'm about discourse and about the search for truth. I want to thank Free People Radio, which has given the Professor Penn podcast this forum where we form this political action community to go out and look for truth together and to find ways to affect positive change in our communities. That's what we're really doing here. You know, there's going to be people that are going to say, and it happens here in, in Minnesota, oh, Professor Penn, he's in it for the money. No, I'm not. If I get rich because I get rich, it's not in my hands. I'm not looking for that. I've given over to a process of participating in politics for the good of my community and for the well-being of the American people. I'm not a communist. If I get rich doing it, I will not allow those gains to impact or affect my politics. My politics is very simple. I want borders, spiritual and physical. I want assets instead of debt. And I want peace instead of war. Very simple. Seems to me to be relatively nonpartisan. Let me say it again in case anybody wants to argue. Please argue away. I want spiritual borders. I want to have some limits on myself. I don't want to have unlimited ambition. I want to have assets instead of debt. And I want to have peace instead of war. It doesn't seem to me to be a complicated or polarizing set of political goals. Seems rather simple. Why is it so complex? The reason it's complex is, is to make me go home and smoke a joint and watch cartoons. That's why it's complex. Why is it so ugly and nasty? Why do they make people hate each other so much so that good people give up and go home? I was just talking to a good person this morning. He goes, I'm not getting on X. Those people are crazy. Yes, they are. And you know why they're crazy? Because we're made crazy. I spend so much time reading posts that are put up by people that have millions of followers that are solely intended to make people crazy. It's called crazy-making behavior. I mean, for those of us that have some background in the psychological realm, crazy-making behavior. Uh, let me give you a, a perfect example. We all know. We all know. How could we know what we all know? That's a cognitive distortion. It makes people crazy. That's normal. You mean you know what normal is? Wow. You mean if I don't fit right in your little L7 box, I'm not normal? Boy, that's a sanction. Forever, always, never. I know what's going to happen in the next election. I'm going to tell you how this is going to turn up. You are? You can tell the future? Wow. What are you doing in politics? Why aren't you in uh, investment counseling? Because I'm following you if you know what the future is going to be. We make a lot of money together. You see, the whole thing is being run by people who are paid to drive citizens out of their rational minds. Because if we're no longer rational, if we can't think clearly, 
if we're driven into our emotional selves, we can be much more easily controlled. It's just a control mechanism. So those of us that are out there trying to search for the truth, speak the truth, you know, I'm going to engage with you. If you want to call me mean things, nasty names, label me, I, you know, I don't care. I guess I might care if we were five feet away from each other because, you know, you'd be in proximity. I'd care a lot more if I see one of your limbs coming in my direction. Then it's getting personal. But short of that, you know, have at it. The thing of it is, is we're not getting anywhere with you calling me this or that. And I try not to do that back. And when I do, I've lost it. And and I'm going to say to my audience, yeah, I lose it a lot. I'm, I, I'm far from where I want to be. Far from where I want to be. And in fact... You might say, well, I'm going to say it for me personally, and if you're not a believer in God, that's cool. Everybody's got their psychological mechanisms to get through this crazy thing we call life. And I have people I love very much that are close to me, and they, they don't make fun of me, but they think you know that my faith is you know, my crutch because they've been taught that faith is a crutch. Hey, I need need two crutches. That's how screwed up I am. So let me help myself today with my two crutches that lift me up and ennoble me and encourage me to do good and to improve myself. Because if it works for me, why do you hate me? Because I say, blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the light and the dark. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating me in your image. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me an American. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me free. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for healing the blind. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for feeding the people. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for releasing the bound. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for raising up the downtrodden. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the heavens and earth. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for providing for all my needs. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for directing my path. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for our American courage. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for crowning America with glory. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for restoring strength to the weary. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for sending your Son to die on the cross that I might be saved. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Pardon me, my King, for I have willfully transgressed. For you pardon and forgive. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds who is gracious and ever willing to forgive. I have to say that I believe that I receive freedom from sin because we're living in a sinful world, and the one thing I know I can do, I know I can do, is break my dependency on sin. And when I say sin, I mean separation from the eternal, separation from the unseen world. If you want to call that God or Christ or Yahweh or 
Allah, you have some way of saying it for yourself that's different than me. I'm, I'm not in opposition to that. I'm an American. We have freedom of religion here. Freedom. It's freedom to practice, to self-develop as you see fit. We are a reaction against the, our, our politics is a reaction against the divine right of kings and their alliance with the unholy Roman church because it was unholy, possibly continues to be. And that's not a knock on Catholicism. Wherever God appears, wherever goodness appears, wherever something noble appears, something ignoble, something terrible will move to oppose it. I don't know why I didn't make the world. It's just the way it is. I'm just observing it myself. So we see these fantastic institutions like the United Nations like the Republican Party, like our universities, filled, filled with inequity, filled with sin, filled with self-interest. The institutions that we rely on to care about us, we the people, that they don't care about us at all. They don't care about my family at all. I know that because I don't get any benefits. All I do is kick in the pot. Nothing else comes back but anxiety kind of scam is that? I'm kicking in the pot, working my whole life, and all I got is I got to worry that the world's going to blow up tomorrow? Come on. That's, that's not a fair trade. That's not even free trade. That's a, kind of a servitude. And people have had a belly full of it. They're done. They're done. And when people hear me say they've had a belly full of it, they know where I heard it first, and I like it because I've had a belly full of it. I've had a bully, belly full of the whole scam. And, you know, it's a con, a con. We're living in a con. There is something called the long con. It's actually a British invention. And the con is when a set of insiders, con artists, create a illusion which separates the mark from their assets. It's a con. You know, I was sitting at my house. I get a phone call this past week. Phone rings. The, the woman identifies herself. She says, I'm calling from an American Express, and um, we think there's been a $1,500 charge on American Airlines that are not, that's not right. And, oh, boy, that'll make you pay attention. So I sit down, and I start talking to this woman. And I this kind of growing feeling that the scam is these people. And they were actually fishing for my American Express credit card number. And, you know, I almost gave it to them, and I'm an informed consumer. I mean, they were so good at it. We need this and we need that. You know, if we're going to help you, this. And then finally, I just said, how do I not know that you're not conning me? Click. As soon as you bust the con. The con artists run for cover because they know they're con artists and we're busting these people out. And one of the con artist groups that are getting busted out right now is the Republican National Committee. They're getting busted. They're getting busted out because they've been running a scam for years and that scam would be called we're different than the Democrat. My theory is they're the same people, Democrat and Republican. Now, if you're on the left, I know you don't want to hear this. 
And I know if you're a, a rhino traditional Republican, you don't want to hear this because you're the con artists. But the fact is, these two groups, the Democrats and Republicans, the left and the right, the red and the blue, they're in a system together. And that system is our system of politics. It's called bipartisanship. And what is the outcome of the bipartisanship? $34 trillion of debt, an open sore of a border, and an endless war. So I don't want to hear how good the Republican Party is or how good the Democrat Party is. The sum total of their effort is not bringing about a well-being culture for my children. It's not bringing about well-being. It's bringing about death and disease and debt. That's what it's doing. That's who these people are. So I don't care what they call themselves. There's so many people in the Republican Party of Minnesota that I have personal interaction with that I'm sure are Democrats because they tell me they're Democrats. Though they don't say I'm a Democrat, but you listen to what they believe. They don't believe anything that is part of the Republican Party or part of the Republican, you know, uh, uh, raison d'etre, so to speak. They're off in the Republican Party. Why? Because they want low taxes and low regulation. They're in it for materialist reasons. But that's what the Democrat Party does. Let's think about this scam for a second. The Democrat Party is all about the money. It's all about the money. It buys the loyalty of its voters through benefits, financial benefits. But it talks about climate change to save the planet. Oh, that's very spiritual. And it talks about social equity to right the colonial wrongs of the past. That's super spiritual. And it talks about the concept of democracy and a woman's right to choose and freedom. The very spiritual ideas. But what they actually do is, it's all about the money. And then the Republican Party, which is really a party formed about human freedom and to end slavery, it's a very ennobling and high-end spiritual set of ideals. All those people talk about is the money, low taxes. We want low taxes. If you're in the low-tax camp, or if you're in the camp that says we need to run an empire, that camp, you're over here with the Democrats. Those are Democrat ideas. You say, well, what do you mean empire? That's the military. That's not Democrat. It's called the post-World War II Democrat liberal order. Let me say it again to you. If you're watching me for the first time and you come in and you, you know, yeah, hey, I hate these mega people. You're going to label me a mega. Please don't, because the label doesn't fit. If you're saying that you believe that the United States military needs to reign across the world to control an empire, and you want low taxes, which those two things don't go together if you thought about it, and you think this is making us safe and rich, you're a Democrat. You're in the Democrat camp because you're supporting the Democrats' post-World War II Democrat liberal order, number one. And for you, it's all about the finances. It's all about materialism. It's got nothing to do with God. Even if you wrap yourself in the cloth of faith, the reason you're a Republican is for low taxes. I'm a Republican, not because I, yeah, I just, you knew, I don't like the Republican Party. The Republican Party hates me. I'm an officer, and they're going to try to get rid of me. And that's okay. It's cool. It's politics. Why am I in the Republican Party? 
because there's still people there that believe in God, and I happen to believe in God. And if you hate me because I believe in God, you're missing the point of our Constitution, which we have freedom of religion. I'm not saying that you have to be convert or die to what I believe. And any propaganda along this area is propaganda. American citizens are free. We self-govern. Self-governance is the process of becoming, the process of pursuing life, the process of pursuing liberty, the process of pursuing happiness. It's a process of self-development. Let's just know who we are. Let's get this thing sorted out. And it is sorting out because here's the great news of the day. The Republican Party is screaming two things. Nobody's giving us any money. And all of our state parties are also, not all of them, but that's a cognitive distortion. Let me try again. Many of our state parties are in total disarray, in conflict because of these mega Republicans. So what the Republican Party is doing, and it's using Fox News, and even MSNBC is out there talking about it. I watched Chris Hayes run a whole piece on the Chris Hayes show, all in, about how the Republican Party can't raise money. And there's many areas of the country, many states that are in complete disarray because of these mega Republicans. And he was making fun of it. But what he was actually doing is he was advertising for the Uni Party. He was saying, please send money to the Republican Party and please let's have unity. And what's the unity around? The unity is around discretionary, discretionary domestic spending. All this fighting is about discretionary domestic spending for the military-industrial complex, for the media-industrial complex, for the educational-industrial complex, and for the medical-industrial complex. All this fighting is about that. And guess what? Both sides agree. And how do we know that? Because they're funded. They're fund The output of all your leftist work is to fund the very institutions that the rightists want to fund. Wake up. We're in a long con. We need a new politics about human well-being, which is distinct from this dialectic, from this polarity, which will allow American citizens to pursue their well-being, to, to operationalize the rights granted to them by a creator, those rights being a right to life, a right to liberty, and a right to pursue happiness. And we're going to talk about that. But the Republicans, they're actually raising money. They're just claiming they're not raising money. And they're screaming for unity, and I'll tell you how they're getting it. Well, right here in Minnesota, they're just bouncing people out of the party. Because what is the Republican Party and what is the Democrat Party? They're private clubs with consumer-facing websites. If you come into these parties and you toe the line, all is good. We got a guy right here in Minnesota, CD3, Dean Phillips. He's a good politician. I've met him. I like him. I don't like his politics, but I like him personally. He's a great politician. And he decided to jump up and uh, run for the nomination, the endorsement of the Democrat Party for this presidential cycle. And they're actually making fun of this guy. They're making fun of him. They're actually, I'm talking about the Democrats. They're making a joke out of him. And he's just running. And that's no different than the folks that made a, a, a huge disparaging discrediting campaign against DeSantis. These people are exercising their their rights to run as candidates. It's a way to self-govern. It's a very advanced way to self-govern, to put yourself out in the crowd and put your ideas out in front of the people, mano to mano. 
or woman to mono or however we're going to say that because I certainly don't mean to be saying it in a sexist kind of way. I'm older. I'm, I'm falling upon um, words and phrases that go back into antiquity. But if a man or woman wants to run, they deserve respect, not derision. We don't have to like their ideas. We can vote against their ideas, but their bravery, their bravery. Like, I don't like Nikki Haley, but her bravery to step up and to do this is to be respected because she's self-governing. Now, is she on the payroll of the military-industrial complex? Yes, she was an officer of Boeing. Is she a neocon warhawk? Yes, she is, and I don't like those ideas. I still respect her for participating in the political process. We'd like to have a lot more people participate. Let it become more chaotic, more chaos, more ideas, more competition of ideas so that we get a better result. But the Republicans are just screaming for money because they need money to run their machine. They're screaming for it. And the Republican Party is suffering from a great deal of conflict because American citizens have had enough of it. They want a different party. And the party's trying to raise money to fight back the American citizens. Well, hey, we're a political movement right here. Yes, we are. We're a political movement. We have Free People Radio. You can go to the store, freepeopleradio.com. We have a store. It's a quid pro quo. You give us some money, we'll give you a T-shirt. We'll give you coffee mugs. We'll give you things that really you can use. And please support us if you like the content because we do need the support. This, you know, I'm not wealthy. This money didn't fly out of the clouds. We got to earn money to stay on air and keep broadcasting. So please, if you like the content, please sh share something with us. We, I got a, a big donation from a supporter this weekend, $500 from one person. You know, amazing. I want to thank that person. Kathy, I want to thank you. That is so cool that you're willing to support this content, this broadcast. And that's how we're going to stay on air, with the support of the viewers and the listeners. And we have a money-making strategy. I'm in the tire business. I've been in the tire business since 1979. In fact, I'm going to use the tire business to help elucidate what's going on in the economy. Because in this area, there are few people in the entire world that have more expertise than I do. And I'm going to say this again. In the tire industry, there are few people alive on planet Earth today. There might not be anybody that has more expertise than I do in the tire business because I've been in it since 1979 at a very senior level. So I use the tire business to talk about what's going on in our economy because tires are a good barometer of what's going on. And let me tell you, if people aren't driving, they're not buying tires. And if they're not driving, they're not spending money. And if they're not spending money, oh, over the next hill, the ass is getting ready to fall off the donkey. Simple things like that that I know from watching this for many years. But we're in the tire business. Most of us have vehicles. We have to buy tires. We've got the right price. we got the right service. We can do everything. We can put the tires on for you. We can do the whole program. So please go to TireGet.com, T-I-R-E-G-E-T.com. And here's a short, tells you a little bit about the company.
TireGet, T-I-R-E-G-E-T.com. TireGet is here for the movement and for all the broadcasters and channels and stations that are presenting this content for you. TireGet is a online e-commerce platform where you can buy your tires. Now, everybody buys tires or most of us buy tires. There's everything there that you need for your vehicles. All kinds of different brands, premium major brands, premium private label brands, every kind of tire. You go there, you pick your tire. We will ship the tires to the installer right by your house at no extra charge. You pay TireGet to have your tires installed. It's a one-stop shop for everything you need in tires and the best customer service in the tire business. So the next time you buy tires, think of TireGet. You gotta buy your tires from someone. Please buy them from us. Okay, welcome back. That's the soap selling for today. And I want to get right into matters of the economy because this is critical. There's something that's come up that is um, really indicative of the kind of uh, spin that we all find ourselves suspended in. Could you please play number one? Number one. It's 346 from CBS News. Well, the first month of 2024 saw massive job growth that really outperformed economists' expectations. That's right. The latest jobs report shows the labor market remains unusually robust in spite of high interest rates and inflation. La labor Department said today U.S. employers added a total of 353,000 jobs last month. The unemployment rate held steady at 3.7 percent. Earlier on the stream, acting Labor Secretary Julie Hsu said this jobs report, quote, crushed expectations. It demonstrates that uh, the economy continues to grow. Uh, the labor force participation rate remains high, meaning that people are in the job market and when they're looking for jobs, there are jobs out there for them. We've now had the unemployment rate less than 4% for two whole years running. And the other thing, when you ask about, you know, what do I hope that American people will note, it's that we're seeing that wage growth was also higher than expected. Daniel Zhao is here with us in Studio 57. He's the lead economist at Glassdoor. Daniel, welcome. So these numbers are really fascinating because you had several companies that announced mass layoffs last month. How surprising is this latest jobs report? Well, I think today's jobs report is a huge surprise in actually two different ways. One, of course, is that the headline jobs growth figure was much higher than expectations. But beyond that, we actually got a rear view mirror look at 2023, which, as we know, was much more resilient than expected, but it actually even looks better than what we had originally thought with 3.1 million jobs added over the course of 2023. Uh, that's a little bit slower than the previous COVID recovery years, but actually was the highest rate of jobs growth between 2000 and 2019. So uh, much stronger than expected, especially given um, what, we, what we've been hearing in the headlines about layoffs. Yeah, and I want to ask you about uh the Fed, because obviously this report coming just two days after the Fed met and decided to leave interest rates unchanged, steady job growth, usually good in an economy, but in the case where it's where it is really exceeding expectations, it means it's a heated economy that is anti uh, the Fed's desire to bring down inflation. So does, do you think that this is actually going to lead to a delay in the Fed cutting those interest rates? 
Well, I think especially the wage growth figure coming in hotter than expected means that the Fed is likely to stand pat on their decision not to cut rates in March and, in fact, might even push back that time frame a little bit further. Uh, that being said, I think jobs growth figure is probably in a close to a sustainable range. We got over 300,000 jobs added in December and January, but that's probably not what the true underlying growth rate. There's always a little bit of volatility uh, with uh, some of the seasonality at the start of the year or at the turn of the year, really. Um, so I do think that jobs growth figure we're getting is consistent with uh, a job market that can be in balance, as the Fed likes to say. In balance. All right. So then should we be concerned, though, that you have more and more people working and inflation could potentially be driven higher? I don't think we're yet at that point. I think the wage growth figure is probably a little bit hotter than where the Fed wants it to be. But at the same time, we are getting other data that might suggest that wage growth is going to decelerate a little bit more. So the quits rate, for example, is, is coming down as employees are just a little bit less confident about their prospects on the open job market. We also see other wage data, which is a little bit softer. So I think that we are likely to see wage growth decelerate. And at the same time, as long as inflation keeps coming down, that gets us closer to that soft landing. All right, Daniel Jow, thank you for being here. Thanks. Thank you. Well, this jobs report got a lot. I mean, a lot of play, a lot of play. And economics is a little bit like Bible study. It's always also written. I really delved into this jobs report heavily, heavily, because I know where to go to look up the government statistics. And, you know, if you don't really go look at the source material, you're just arguing over what somebody told you. And I'm not going to do that. I mean, I, I have no problem, problem saying I don't know. I don't know. I mean, people in my business, I got a business, right? People ask me questions and they go, oh, you're the boss. You're supposed to know. I have no clue. I don't know. I don't know. Things I don't know. So what do I do when I don't know? Well, there's two things. Either I let it go and I keep my mouth shut or I go look it up. And what's great about our government, the government of the United States of America, it has a history where things were not so, shall we say, contentious. The post-war period. You know, after there's a bloodletting where 90 million people die, there's a period of relative peace and safety afterwards because people have had a belly full of killing each other. And in that period, there's a little bit more honesty, a little bit more transparency, and we have those transparent and honest elements to our government. They write everything down. So, you know, you can go to the Bureau of Labor Statistics and look things up for yourself. You don't have to listen to this young economist. And even he said at the end, well, there's a little seasonality. Because, you see, he might have to appear in front of his peers sometime in the future, and he can't just be completely full of it. Seasonality means that the numbers get adjusted down the road. And when they go back and adjust these numbers for seasonality, we might find out that the job creation was overstated, as has been happening every year. Furthermore, if you go look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, they're actually changing the way they count this stuff. They slashed the number of hours. This is how they came up with this data. They sharply slashed the number. I went and looked at this. I saw it for myself. They sharply slashed the number of estimated hours that everyone was working. That changes how the numbers come out, doesn't it? 
you know, you, when you change the denominator and the numerator, either one, X or Y, the numbers come out different. But the thing that really bothered me about this, the thing that really frosted my ass, actually, is when you go look up the quality of these jobs. This is the thing that really matters. Yes, we're all working our asses off to pay for the empire. And that's what we're doing. We're paying for the empire. We're at war. We're at war in two theaters with a third theater getting ready to go. We're paying for it. They've saddled us up. The inflation is not an accident. Let's remember if you're new here, inflation is government policy. doesn't have to be inflation. In fact, the Fed targets 2% annual as their target rate of inflation. So they're intentionally inflating the, the economy all the time. All the time. And what really bothers me about this is how people are being forced to work. Because if you really take a look at the jobs that have been created since February of 2023, basically a year ago, almost all of them are part-time jobs. Yes, people are working. They're working multiple part-time jobs. They're not getting full-time employment. They're getting very low-pay part-time jobs. And that is not the kind of fulfilling work where people can invest themselves and develop well-being. Because we've talked about this, the three emptying factors, having nothing is very unhealthy. It's very unwell. And if you're working your ass off for nothing, you get frustrated. It's a bad energy system. People are not getting, we are not creating as a society, new full-time employment at a good wage. We're creating a lot of service industry jobs at very low wages. And then taxing the people for having the work. It's brutal. It's a brutal thing. Now, I know there are going to be people on the left that are going to say, oh, it's not true. It's not true. You know, you're shilling for Trump. No, I'm not. If you think saddling people up to low-paying jobs with not a future is good, A, I'm going to tell you something. You can take that job and shove it right up your ass. People don't like working like that. People want what's called gainful and fulfilling employment. And when you dumb people down and you remove their opportunities, you're making them very passive and very unhappy. And I don't like that. I want a society filled with challenging opportunities where people can self-govern and develop themselves. That's possible. We're just not doing it. We're exporting those jobs. And then on top of it, we got this whole robotics thing working. What are we doing to the people? The people that need fulfilling work, that people that want to make a contribution, that want to improve their lives through self-governance. What are we doing to these people with this economy? That's something we want to ask ourselves on the left and the right. What profit us? What does it profit us if we gain the world and lose our souls? So we're making some money. So what? I mean, it's better than starving, I, I, I grant you that. But what about the kind of work that lifts up our whole country? Why, why does it sound to me, even when I say these things, I, I sound like a prophet in the wilderness? Well, let me tell you something. I love what I do. I've always worked for myself. I create my own wealth. And I know, I know for a fact, because I'm in the game, 
that this economy is meant to destroy the self-governance of self-employment. I know it for a fact because I'm watching it, I'm living it. So when they tell me how good the economy is, I know it's keeping people off the streets to some degree. I know it looks good on the headlines, all these jobs, but the quality of these jobs is, is not great. People are going to say there's all kinds of new businesses starting. Yeah, you can start a restaurant that has a 95% chance of going broke in a year. Try to start a real business. A real When I say a real business, I mean try to manufacture something. Try to do something that involves logistics. Try to do something that involves competing with the big boys. And you're going to find out real quick, the game's rigged so you can't compete. The game is rigged so you can't compete because they're cooking the books. They're cooking the books. They're telling us that these jobs are great when in reality the jobs are not very good. They're telling us that things are going great, but when you adjust and you look at how they're coming up with the numbers, they're cooking the numbers, like inflation. You know, they have a basket of goods to monitor inflation that they constantly change so that the inflation is hidden. Actually, if you look at inflation since 1965, since the Great Society was started by Lyndon Johnson, it's a straight line other than a brief period of time. When we flooded our country with imported goods from China, which masked the underlying inflation because hard goods got cheap, and the price of that charade was the exporting of millions of American jobs to another country. Hey, this is really, you say, okay, this stuff happened organically. I don't think so. I think they know exactly what they're doing. I think they know exactly what they're doing. And the one that I can't prove just didn't have the time. But an assertion has been made from the right, and it could be true, that there's been very little job growth for native-born citizens. That over the past years, four years, the jobs that have been created have been going mostly to foreign-born people in our country. And you can see that if it's surface jobs that don't require a lot of training to take. And if that's the case, the allegation is, is that 2 million American citizens born in this country have lost their jobs since the start of the Biden administration. If that's true, and I'm saying it very clear, carefully because I can't prove it, it's just a story to me right now. But if that story has an element of truth, hey, uh, you know what? Which way do you think those people are going to vote when Trump is saying he's going to impose a 60% tax on goods coming in from China if he's reelected? Re I'll tell you where they're going to vote. They're not going to vote Democrat. They're not going to vote Republican. They're going to vote to live. They're going to vote to have a life. And the politics we're working on here is not left or right. Many of the solutions that I would propose, and I do propose, in this podcast would be deemed leftist. In fact, I got Republicans that call me, uh, you know, a liberal. What they're really saying is, I'm a kike. But we'll leave that to the side for today. We'll come back to it. Anyhow, these this jobs report, which is being touted to lift up Bidenomics as being very successful, I'm going to give you the summary of why it's a scam. Just stay with me on this. Yes, there's a lot of jobs. Let's say they're great jobs. Let's say everything that the right is saying about 
It's preferential to foreign-born and is prejudicial against native-born is a lie. Let's agree. Let's agree. I'm going to agree with you on the left that it was a phenomenal jobs report. And now I'm going to show you why it's a bullshit story. Because we're borrowing and creating $2 trillion in this fiscal year. $2 trillion. It was $2 trillion last year. It'll be $2 trillion next year. When George Bush, not a favorite of mine, took over in 2001, I think the debt was $3 trillion. It's $24 trillion, and by the end of this year, it'll be $25 trillion. That means over the last 20 years, we've pumped into the economy $22 trillion of bogus money. It's not money that came from profits. It's money that it's not money that came from creativity or productivity. It's money that was created by the Fed to bandage over a problem. And that problem is our economy is failing. I don't say this is a Biden issue. I don't say this is a Trump issue. I don't say it's a Bush issue. I don't say it's an Obama issue. It's all of these people. Bush, Obama, Trump, and Biden have all done the very same thing. They've presided over an administration that has borrowed tremendously to what they call paper over the problem. See, this is an old one from the big, the Great Depression. It's called papering over the problem. They papered over the problem. Actually, that came from, you know, wallpaper. But currency is kind of the same thing. Fiat currency, you can use it for wallpaper. You can use it to paper over a huge problem, which is our economy has failed. It's failing the American people. And when this paper over the problem thing runs out, all we're going to have is a problem. So don't tell me how great the jobs numbers are. Don't tell me how great the economy is. President Trump, don't tell me how great your economy was. It's bullshit. We need an economy that is based on productivity and creativity. And when you go to a socialist formation, you preclude the risks that come with creativity. When creativity declines, productivity declines. You end up in a trap, and that's where we are. We're in a trap. So the pain, the result, the, the payoff of over 20 years of profligate spending is right in front of us. And there are people who say, oh, yeah, you know, the sky is falling. And people say this to me on X, the sky is falling. And let me just make it very clear. You can borrow money to create new business, to, to invest in productive assets. But when you're borrowing money, to pay your expenses, you're going broke. And that's who we are. We're going broke. You want to change that? Turn public debt into public assets, one of my very simple political goals. Now, I want to say that we get community questions. And I have been advised, and I think this is cool, to ask you to ask me questions so that we can talk. And I said this on a previous podcast. Just put it in a live chat. I'll screenshot it, and I'll come back to it if I can. If I don't answer your question, it's not personal. If it's a good question, I'll try to answer it. If it's a, you know, a crappy question like someone said, you know, 
why do I support a, a cult leader? You know, it's hard to answer a question like that other than to say, say I don't support cults or cult leaders. I mean, you know, unless you want to say the, the uh, United States of America is a cult, and you know that that would be an interesting claim. But I've been I've been advised for the, for the good of the podcast and for the good of the community to take community questions, and I got a couple of good ones. One of the community members asked me, which I was shocked. He, they said, what's the difference between Catholics and Protestants? I thought to myself, wow, that's a, quite a revealing question because this viewer and listener is not really paying a lot of attention to the history of religion, which would probably indicate that they're not interested in religion. Okay, then there maybe is a lot of people listening like that. So what is the difference between Catholics and Protestants? we got to go back to the way back. History is related all the way back and all the way forward. It's all one connected movement of ideas. So in the way back, way, way back, when human beings lived very close to survival level, we were what the religions that we practice are what anthropologists call animism. We believe that a rock had a spirit, a tree had a spirit. Kind of like that last scene in the first Matrix movie where Neo looks at the agents and all he sees is energy. That's kind of what that non-intellectual, non-schooled up, non-university mind sees everything as life. It's all life and death. And we, we, we moved along and we got a little bit better at getting from survival level and we created some agriculture, and we created polytheistic pantheons of gods. There was a sun god, and a harvest god, and a fertility god. You know, we, 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 we created a religious hierarchy. At first, it was just people out there going, wow, I'm alive, and everything else is alive, and I'm dead, and everything else is dead. Not a lot of thought went into it, because they were struggling just to live day by day. And when it got a little bit better, a religious hierarchy was formed to mediate between the unseen world and the seen world. And they created different cults, like a fertility cult. Why? Because they got paid for that. The money went uphill and the shit came downhill. And they were pantheons of gods, a god for fertility and for the spring and for the harvest and for the moon and the sun and et cetera. And so for war, God of war, I'm going to war. I better pay the war God. Oh, because, hey, I want some extra power. And that went on for thousands of years. And then a dude showed up. His name was Abraham. Abraham. Abram. Was, at first it was Abram. And then God said, your name's Abraham. And Abraham said, wait a second here. There's really only one true God. And that was the beginning of what's called monotheism. One God. Mono. Mono. And this was a from an anthropological perspective, a much more efficient organization of community resources. You didn't have all these gods and all these cults. There was just one central authority. It made things a lot easier to govern. It made for a good army. And away they went, and the nation of Israel got itself put down in, uh, in, in the land of Israel. And they practiced this monotheistic religion, but they ran into something called the Holy Roman Empire. And it wasn't holy then. It was just the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was that 
that polytheistic formation of faith. And these two cultures clashed together. And there was a lot more Romans than there were Jews, and the Jews lost on paper. But in spirit, in spirit, the Romans took Jewish slaves and Jewish women back to Rome. And guess what spread? Monotheism. Monotheism spread. And a new cult was formed, the cult of Christianity. And the Christianity came from Judaism. So it was animism, polytheism, Judaism. And out of Judaism came Christ. And from that came Christianity. And from that came the church, the, the Catholic church, the original church. And that was a continuation of Judaism by other means. It's very Jewish. Sorry if you're Christian, but I've prayed in the Christian church, and it is very Jewish. It has a deep tie to Judaism. In fact, the Christian church, the Catholic church, acknowledges that there's an Old Testament, which is the Torah, the five books of Moses. And then there's a New Testament, and that was the Catholic church. And the Catholic church allied itself with kings and queens in Europe. It was a very good organizing principle. It was the divine right of kings and the church working together to rule the people. It's called feudalism, not a sustainable polity. And it started to come apart. There was protest. People started to protest. They protested. They protested the hegemonic control of the divine right of kings and queens and the Holy Roman Church. They were protesters. And that's where the word Protestant comes from. Protestants were protesting the Catholic formation of the religious hierarchy. So we had a, a, a movement through history. We don't have the time to get into all the differences. But one of the most important differences is, is in the Jewish formation, there was a priestly class. In the Catholic formation, there was a priestly class. And it was Christ that said, hey, scribes and Pharisees, get out of here. And he turned over the tables in the temple because he didn't believe in a priestly class. He said, let there be a Holy Ghost. Let God live inside you. You don't need an intermediary. You don't need 10 men to pray. Wherever you are, God is if you have faith. And that went through a long period of evolution. And the Protestants said, we agree with Christ. We're going to overturn the religious hierarchy of the Catholic Church. So I hope I've done a good job of explaining this it's a very complex subject. I'm, this is obviously the cliff notes, but it brings up the next question that I got from another uh, uh, viewer, and I, I thought this was something I could really comment on. The question was exactly, I'm going to read it exactly, why are Jews so embedded in the Democrat Party when it's so seemingly against their interests? Well, I want to say right off the bat, seemingly against their interests. Nah. I have to be a little critical of this because there's two kinds of Jews. There's Jews and there's Jews in name only. The real Jews, it's not against their interest because they don't care about Democrats or Republicans. They only care about God. That's what they're focused on. The other group, the Jews in name only, or as we call them, the Ginos, the Rhinos, the Minos, you know, there's, there's, there's plenty of, of these groups that hold on to the cultural history but they're really in it for the cash. They're materialists. It is their interest. Money is their interest. Not that religious group, but that non-religious group 
It is their interest. And what they've done through their educational prowess is they've been able to grow up through the academic system, which we're going to talk about just in a minute here, and take positions of power within the institutions of our country. So for those Jews that are educated in law, in medicine, in science, they're the beneficiaries of the post-World War II Democrat liberal order, even though the tax rate might be a little bit higher, or even though there's a growing anti-Israel movement in the Democrat Party, which those Jews are beaten down full, full blast every day of the week. Here's my point. Why are Jews in the Democrat Party? Number one, going back to before people were thinking about this, when they got here, they ran into tremendous anti-Semitism coming at them, mostly from the Republican Party. Very strong anti-Semitism. It was the Democrat Party that figured out to open up their arms to immigrants and come up with a new constituency, as we're seeing right now here today. It wasn't always that way, because guess what? The Democrat Party was the party of slavery. But when President Johnson turned things around, they went all the way. They had been opening up their arms to minority groups for decades, and they turned it into a big business. So the, the Jews that came here originally found safety in the Democrat Party. And because they were very good at education, very good at getting into the institutions of power, and because they were afraid of the Republicans, they stay in the Democrat Party because when you're making a lot of money, why do you care what the tax rate is? I mean, if I'm making a million bucks a year, do I care if the tax rate is 30 or 40%? Not really. That's another scam. So they've got the Jewish community has gotten itself into peri- into positions of power, not through an international Zionist conspiracy, but through a emphasis on education and educational accomplishment. They're afraid of the Republican Party because of the anti-Semitism that exists there to this day. And they uh, get the benefit of running the show. They're running the show. So I hope that answers um, that question. It's my opinion. And it's, it's perfect. It's a perfect segue into the, uh, a discussion about the elites because these, these, these Jews in name only that have given up the faith to become part of the Democrat, the post-World War II Democrat liberal order and to take positions of power in that formation of policy, uh, they're a very unique group of people. They're the elite 1%. And <clears throat> it's almost as if our elective politics don't mean anything. And, he, and here's why I say that. We put so much time and effort into elective politics, and we hate each other over it, but actually the elective politicians have very little power. We have a big state, a big bureaucratic state, and it's working along under what we call rule of law. And as we know, if you go to school, and become a doctor or a lawyer or a scientist and take a position in that administrative state, you got an, what they call in China an iron rice bowl. Nobody can take your rice bowl away because you're working for the man, right? And there's been some research into this group. Now, there's a, a pollster, and some of you might object to me right away, but, you know, very accurate pollster, uh, Rasmussen Polling, that noticed a perpetual outlier effect in its polls. And they researched this outlier effect. And what they found out was 
out of every 1,000 or so respondents, there would always be three or four who were far more radical than anyone else. And they researched it and they found out those radical responses came from people who had what? Graduate degrees. I mean, law school, medical school, or a PhD. Not that they just attended. They actually finished and they became professionals. With, and these families, these people had family incomes of over 150000 a year, and they lived in large cities with more than 10,000 people per zip code. And this elite 1% are very young. 67% were between 35 and 54 years old. Almost half of them, 47%, favor Bernie Sanders-like policies. This group is overwhelmingly Democrat, 73%. And the gap between the elite 1% and the rest of America is startling. While 57% of all voters say that there is not enough individual freedom in America, 47% of this elite 1% say there is too much freedom. Uh, That would make me on the other side of the football with the folks that raised me and the folks I went to school with. That's why I'm not teaching in the university. For those of you that want to make fun of me online, that I'm not a real professor, it's a choice. I could have been a professor. I don't like hanging around with people that want to take away freedom because I believe in self-governance. So I didn't like these people. I just didn't like the way they were. I didn't like it. So I quit. I didn't take the money. I went out and walked the hard road. I didn't get myself an iron rice bowl. Oh, how easy my life would be but I didn't give up my principles. And my principle is about freedom. Freedom, self-governance, what my Constitution grants to me. Something these people don't believe in. They don't believe in the Constitution, which we're going to see here momentarily. If you ask this group that is politically obsessed, people that talk about politics every day, 69% say there is too much individual freedom in America. One of this elite 1%, and you look at the whole scope of what they believe, they have great faith in our government. 70% of this group trust government to do the right thing most of the time. I don't. I don't. And what is my evidence? $34 trillion in debt, an open sore of a border, and an endless war. These people think this is good. They must be part of the European intellectual tradition. And you know what? They are, because I know who educated them. And I know where they got educated. These people are Darwinists. They went to our best schools. Our best schools. Unbelievable. On average, Americans, average guys and girls, 93% reject cheating and accept defeat in an honest election. Only 7% of everyday people would cheat. Isn't that interesting? But a very high percentage of this elite group are willing to cheat in an election. Staggering. Just staggering. 17% of all voters have a favorable view of college professors. I don't. I went to college. They suck. Almost all of them. There's a few great ones there. My father was a great one. And what did they do to him because he was a great one? They fired him. Because the assholes, like the assholes in the Republican Party that are firing American citizens from the party, the assholes don't want the search for truth. 
They just want the funding for empire. But this elite group, this elite group, 71% love their college professors. It's unbelievable. 77% of this elite group would like to impose, impose strict restrictions and rationing on the private use of gas, meat, and electricity. 77%. I like my meat. You know, you can step on anything, but don't step on my blue suede shoes. I don't like that. My body works on meat. You know, sorry, just the way it does. It's good for my well-being. 72% of the elite 1% favor banning gas-powered vehicles. Isn't that nice? I'm in the tire business. In other words, they want to put me out of business. 69% of the elite 1% favor banning gas stoves. Okay. 58% of the elite 1% favor banning sport utility vehicles. So I guess if you're hunting or fishing, hey, you better give that up. 55% of the elite 1% favor banning non-essential air travel. Hey, Delta Airlines, you guys are on the termination list. Maybe you should go uh, mega instead of the way you're going right now. You see what they do? It really makes everything clear. If you've flown lately, you recognize that the big air carriers, they're all in with this 1% elite because that's who's running these air, air, airlines. But they're running themselves right off the road, kind of like the tire manufacturers. 53% of the 1% favor banning private air conditioning? Wow. Okay. So who are these people? Well, it turns out that they almost all went to the dirty dozen. Harvard, Yale, University of Pennsylvania, Northwestern, John Hopkins, Columbia, where my daughter is, Stanford, Berkeley, Princeton, Cornell, MIT, and the University of Chicago, where I have another daughter. Because what does that tell? What is Professor Penn sharing with you? I've reformed. I believe, because I came out of this academic tradition, that these kids need to get educated. And I sent my first daughter to the University of Chicago proudly. When my second daughter said, I'm going to Columbia, I fought her so hard it schismed my family. Because I don't want my children to be educated by these people, these elites, because they're teaching these kids things that nobody else believes. They're teaching them a bullshit story. And here's what my daughter told me. I want to go to Columbia so I can get a good job, Dad. So let's see how this works. We go to a very elite institution. We're taught a bullshit story, and then we're rewarded with an iron rice bowl where we can preside in the halls of power for the rest of our lives and rule over all the rest of our citizens. That's what we're living in. So if you feel like there's a gap between yourself and your leadership, there is. And it comes out of 12 schools. Harvard. Yale, University of Pennsylvania, Northwestern, John Hopkins, Columbia, Stanford, Berkeley, Princeton, Cornell, MIT, and the University of Chicago. There's your problem right there. And if you're teaching at one of these schools and you're following me, I know there's good scholarship that goes on there. I know there's great teachers that are there. I know there's great students that are there. I know there's a lot of good things going on there. What about all the rest of it? Do you have the courage to come into the live chat, or come on this channel, and tell the American citizens what's really going on in your, in, in your university? I'm waiting for an answer. I'll be waiting a long time. Because, you know, when my dad taught at the university in 19, when I was a kid in the 60s, he had to work for the city filling in potholes to feed me. That's not the way it is today because the government's fully in on higher education. That's why it's turning out so many leftists. 
the best way to lead the opposition, and that was the left, the best way to lead it, the best way to control it is to co-opt it with money, and they've done it. They've done it. And when I say the, the military-industrial complex, the medical-industrial complex, the educational-industrial complex, the media-industrial complex, they're getting what they want. It doesn't matter if Bush is the president or Obama's the president. Same result. It doesn't matter if Trump's the president or Biden's the president. Same result. Are we getting the scam? Are we getting the scam? The Professor Penn podcast is about setting up the conditions for self-governance so American citizens can bring about real change that does what? Enhance the well-being of the people. Don't tell me debt makes me healthy. It does not. Don't tell me an open border makes me healthy. It does not. And please don't tell me war is good for me because I know, I know it's not good for me. The elite 1%. Let's know who we're uh, dealing with here. And interestingly, I'm on X. And these people are on there. Lawrence Tribe, Bill Crystal, you know, the leaders of the intellectual movement. Now, I don't think it's really them. I think it's kids writing in their name. If these people are really that dumb for some of the stuff that they write, we got a serious problem. I think it's graduate students. I think it's young people that don't know what they're really saying and doing because the content that they're putting out is often so poor. That to summarize what uh, Zygmunt U. Brzezinski one time said to uh, Morning Joe Scarborough, who eventually married Zygmunt U.'s daughter, Mika Brzezinski, he said they were talking about Israel. He said, I'm going to paraphrase, he said, your knowledge of the subject is so poor, it's embarrassing for me to discuss this with you. Oh, that's a put down. And that's how I feel with some of these people. And that's why I ask everybody, hey, get in the ring, man. You want to talk to me? Quit calling me names. And let's go over the uh, information together. And maybe we'll get something someplace and make an American community. Let's stop hating each other. Let's start talking to each other. And let's remember where this hatred comes from. We have an adversarial system. It's called rule of law. What the rule of law does is try to take conflict where people kill each other and run it into a courtroom where people beat each other with arguments under rule of law. Let's go back to a previous podcast. This is very important. I read this a previous on a previous podcast and I want to bring it up again. I might have to find this here. Oh, come on now. Well, since I'm not finding it quickly, When they were looking for lawyers in Israel, choose out of the entire nation, men, and now we're going to say women, of substance, God-fearing people, men and women in the search for truth, who hate monetary gain, and you shall appoint them over Israel as leaders, who hate monetary gain, who search for truth, and who fear God. That's who's supposed to be handling this rule of law thing. That's who we're supposed to be uh, working with here. And what do we got? Attorneys, attorneys. Here's Thomas Paine. Let a crown be placed thereon by which the world may know 
that so far as we approve of monarchy, that in America the law is king, whereas in absolute governments the king is law, so in free countries the law ought to be king and there ought to be no other. But of course, when we lose our sacred honor, the people that run the rule of law, the attorneys, suck. And what we get is the mess we're in today. It's a mess, just a mess. You know, it brings to mind a joke. Just just to make this a little bit light, because we're really getting into why things suck. So there was this um, beautiful couple. It was the homecoming queen and the college quarterback. These people were hot for each other. They loved each other. Think about it. 18 years old, full of life, full of desire, and beautiful. These people were, you know, prime. And a tragedy happened. They got in a car accident and they died. They died. Both of them died. It was Everybody was sad. But they went up to heaven because they were good Catholic kids. And they had never had any sexual relations. They actually were living in the old way. So they figured they were going to get into heaven. They found themselves right at heaven's door. And there was St. Peter at the gate, ready to let him in. But this kid, this college quarterback, you know, you know, think about it. He's never had sex. He's like filled with desire. The, the kid's, you know, his brain's not working right. He's at heaven. And all he can say to St. Peter is, hey, you know, St. Peter, can we please get married? We love each other. We never got a chance to consummate our, our marriage. Can we, can, we, can we get married in heaven? St. Peter looked at these two beautiful kids and he, he just shook his head and he disappeared, disappeared. And the two kids sat down on the bench right outside the gates. She's so beautiful and he's so strong. And they're sitting there waiting and waiting one day, two days, three days. And the girl, you know, she's looking around and she's seeing all these angels and gorgeous people that are in heaven. And, you know, in her head, because she's a modern girl, she starts thinking, what if this marriage doesn't work out? If we get married up here, can I get divorced? I mean, she doesn't say anything, of course, to this man that she loves, but it's in her mind. And finally, after a couple of weeks, here comes St. Peter. He comes back and he looks at the kids and says, come here, come here, I want to talk to you. And they're all excited. And the quarterback says, can we get married? And St. Peter says, yes. And then the girl says, out of nowhere, was a surprise to everyone. Okay, that's great. But what if we need to get divorced? And St. Peter exploded. He was so pissed off. He said, do you know how hard it was for me to find a priest up here? And now you're telling me to go find an attorney? And that's what we got to know about attorneys. They're sellouts. Because they've given up the sacred honor of working for the community in exchange for and in pursuit of material gain. Right now, today, we have 35,940 lawyers working in our federal government. 35,940. And where'd they go to school? Where did they go to school? Well, that'd be uh, Harvard, Yale, University of Pennsylvania, Northwestern, John Hopkins, Columbia, Stanford, Berkeley, Princeton, Cornell, MIT, and University of Chicago. That's where they went to school. They're that elite 1% that believe that uh, I have too much freedom. That's who they are. They got the iron rice bowl of being a government lawyer, and they're running the show. That's who the deep state is. When we say, oh, the deep state, the deep state this, the deep state that, no, it's called rule of law and the lawyers that operate it. For what? For their own little clique. 
They married a girl that went to one of those schools, their kids and their friends. Their friends went to the school. The kids, you know, they, they're all in a social group. They go to Choate and Exeter. This is an ecosystem of assholes. That's what it is. And I was in that ecosystem. I grew up there. So I know who these people are. The first thing is, most of these folks have never been popped in the beak. So they'll say anything because they get away with everything. And if you threaten them in any way, shape, or form, you're going to get a knock on the door. So I'm going to tell you right now, if you're in the live chat, these people are watching us. Let's be respectful. We're still kidding around. They're not. I'm all about the rule of law. I believe in the rule of law. But I'd like it to be adjudicated by lawyers who reject financial gain, who are searchers of seekers of truth, and who are God-fearing. In other words, they have some spiritual borders. Why do we make so many jokes about lawyers in our society? Because they're complete sellouts. Not every one of them. My mother was a lawyer. I don't agree with my mother's politics, but she was an ethical lawyer who gave most of her time to pro bono service to the community. I don't agree with her politically, but what she did with her life and what she did with her law degree was impressive. It was ennobling. I have an attorney, Thomas the Good. If I ever waver in my centering, he's there to remind me about right and wrong. He's not just a lawyer, he's a counselor. He gives good counsel. He works for the church. He does pro bono work. He teaches at the university. He's a man who's committed to improving his community. If you're a professional, and you've lost touch with improving your community, you can get right back into it. Come to free people. Come do charity work with us. Come do pro bono work. Come help the poor. Come use what God has given you or what the society has granted you in a way that will restore your spiritual borders such that you might be healed because you're an important person. There are more than 10,000 attorneys serving today in the, in the Federal Department of Justice. If these people have no sacred honor and they have no spiritual borders, well, hey, the polling said these people are willing to cheat in an election. That's not me saying it. That's Erasmusson poll. Please go look it up. You can find it. If you want to find it, you will find it. There are now 1,331,290 active lawyers in the United States. Active. We live in a legal society. So when we're talking about, when we're talking about restoring the republic, we have to restore our universities, our elite institutions, and the graduate schools so that the people that are educated through these processes come out with a desire to have a spiritual border, to eschew financial gain, to search for truth, to give over to public service. These are public servants, the professional, the professions and the professional ethic. Priests, that's a profession, has a professional ethic. Architects, pretty important, right? We don't want our buildings to fall down. Doctors, doctors, that's a professional episode when I go to the doctor. I'm depending on that doctor to be there for my well-being. 
not for financial gain, but for my well-being. And it's the same with the attorneys. You know, I, I, I've had a lot of, uh, well, for, for a person that's had as much to do in business as I have, I've had very little legal uh, interaction in my career. But I've had enough to know how the game plays. And you run into some great lawyers, great ones, fantastic people. Like in the insurance world, everyone goes, oh, insurance companies are a scam. A lot of scam. But there are lawyers in there that adjudicate these insurance claims that are really wise men that seek the highest possible good. There's assholes in there too, but there's some really great people in there. There are people in the family law court that actually care about the suffering of the people that are in the family court. There are some. But what do we have? we got an adversarial system where a married couple has come to the end of their relationship because they've been fighting often. And then we put them into an adversarial system, and the system encourages them even to fight more. I mean, this is not, this is not righteous. It's not the search for truth. It's a search for cash. The richest part of the bar is the family court. So the people go in there suffering at the worst moment of their lives, and the lawyers that are involved there get paid big money to help them keep fighting. I actually told, I, I, I am divorced, and I'm, you know, I'm very sorry to say it, but I am divorced. I actually had my, my attorney try to convince me to get into a custody battle with my ex-wife. I looked at her, I said, are you out of your mind? Do you think I'm going to have a custody battle over my kids over a day, a week? What's wrong with you? But see, people, if, if when they get caught up in the emotion of it, when they are manipulated into a fight, oftentimes people will fight over a dog or over the, the china. You know, really, moving on is what divorce is about and healing. And what we need, for example, in that part of the bar is lawyers that are good at helping people heal. Not that people are good at exacerbating the wound. Let me tell you, the model's out there because in the Scandinavian countries, they don't even have a family law bar. They just expect people to take care of it for themselves. You get divorced, you split the money, you split the kids. It's not a business. Everybody moves on. You know, simple. Simple. Like spiritual borders, turning public debt into public assets, and ending war. I want peace and prosperity. Isn't that simple? Very simple ideology. Let's not get caught up in the weeds when the ass is coming off the donkey. And I think one thing we really have to do at this point in American history is I want to redeclare my independence from Great Britain. Because I find myself as an American citizen in three theaters of war that were all created by the British. I keep talking about this Ukraine thing. You can go back. Please go look it up for yourself. You don't have to look far. Go to Wikipedia and go War Britain Russia. 1805 was the first one recently. Then the Crimean War. And thus and so, why am I involved in a European war? The whole reason we have the United States of America is our founding fathers left Europe and rejected it. Otherwise, they would have stayed there. They would have stayed there. They rejected the European religious and intellectual traditions, they came to the New Jerusalem to start a new kind of uh, life, of freedom, of self-governance. And what had happened? <laughs> These Europeans folded us right into our universities, the dirty dozen here we're talking about, 
and they've brainwashed our smartest kids to be Europeans. Whoa, are we dumb? We got to figure out how to get this back in the center of the road. A general dissolution of principles and manners. Well, more, this is Samuel Adams, a great person from our history. You can go look him up. A general dissolution of principles and manners will more surely overthrow the liberties of America than the whole force of the common enemy. While the people are virtuous, they cannot be subdued. But when once they lose their virtue, then will be ready to surrender their liberties to the first external or internal invader. There it is, right there. It's called spiritual borders. Samuel Adams knew it at the time of the American Revolution. He knew that spiritual borders was the defense against utter and total defeat. And that's what I'm saying to myself. I need to improve myself, my own spiritual borders, to reduce or eliminate my dependency on sin such that I can affect the world around me. That's what I'm doing here on the Professor Penn Podcast. I'm not shilling for the right or the left. I'm shilling for the search for truth. I'm shilling for let's know our history. Let's know the Sykes-Picot Agreement and what the hell we're doing blowing stuff up in the Middle East. What are we really defending? Is it our interest? When I say our, I mean, is it my family's interest? Well, it's the interest of this less than 1% of the elites that went to the dirty dozen because they're all educated in the European intellectual tradition. They believe in what's called Atlanticism like the Council on Foreign Relations or the magazine The Atlantic. They believe in that. They went to school. Maybe they did their graduate work at Oxford. They like going to Paris. They're Atlanticists. They believe that our job as American citizens is to defend and maintain the European intellectual tradition. I just don't believe that. I want an authentic American politics, philosophy, and lifestyle. That's what I want something authentically American. That's what I'm looking for. We had it for a while. It's just been ripped away from us by experts. Here's George Washington. Remember George Washington? They're getting ready to rip his statutes down and turn him into a slave owner. Our cruel, and he did own slaves. It makes it a little bit complicated. We need to work our way through this. Quote, George Washington. Our cruel and unrelenting enemy, that'd be the European, leaves us no choice but a brave resistance or the most abject submission. It's an either-or. Either we fight or we're subjugated. We're right Nothing's changed since 1776. We're fighting the same battle for independence. I declare my independence from the European business model of slavery, drugs, and piracy. I declare my independence from the European intellectual tradition, and that will include Marxism. That is a European invention, Marxists. We didn't think it up here. Why are we taking it? Why are we going to work on the New Jerusalem? It's never been born. It's never been born. We, our generation, we have a chance to bring it into birth. I declare my independence. Our cruel and unrelenting enemy leaves us no choice but a brave resistance or the most abject submission, this is all we can expect. We have therefore to resolve to conquer or die. Ooh, that's rather binary, isn't it? 
but it's a message for today. Our own country's honor all call upon us for a vigorous and manly exertion. Women, this was a different period. How about we say it like this? All call upon us for a vigorous and human exertion. And if we now shamefully fail, we shall become infamous to the whole world, as we are. We are failing because we have jobs reports that say everything's great, but we had $2 trillion of funny money in the system. Pull that money out and see how great that jobs report is there, Steve Ratner, or all the rest of you talking heads. Quit lying to the American people. Quit gaslighting me. I don't like it, because I know economy. If we now shamefully fail, we shall become infamous to the whole world. Let us therefore rely upon the goodness of the cause and the aid of the supreme being, which is why we pray at the beginning of the podcast. I'm asking for help. In whose hands victory is to animate and encourage us to great and noble actions. The eyes of all our countrymen are now upon us, and we shall have their blessings and praises if happily we are the instruments of saving them from the tyranny mediated against them. Let us therefore animate and encourage each other and show the whole world that a free man contending for liberty on his own ground is superior to any slavish mercenary on earth. I guess the battle's never been won. We only thought it was won. It's going on right now. The same battle that went on in 1776, we're still fighting it. That's why they put in the Constitution enemies foreign and domestic, because these sons of guns were wired to a supernatural connection, and the words that were coming out of the mouth and the writings that came out of their hands were not human. They were informed with a superhuman or a divine character. And anybody who's ever been in a fight or played a violin concerto or written a rock and roll song or painted a picture of great value knows that creativity flows through us and is not our property. And that's one of the things we want to work on together here on the podcast. How can we get that level of connection such that we can experience that creativity for ourselves? Because then we're not going to walk around and say there is no unseen world because it will be affecting our lives. Isn't that cool? We can prove it to ourselves if we but train to develop those skills. Here's a great one. Thomas Paine. This is where I'm coming from. If there must be trouble, let it be in my day so that my children may have peace. Let me read this again because I have five children. If there must be trouble, let it be in my day that my children may have peace. Isn't that great? That's bravery. Courage, one of the key concepts. Oh, here's another slave owner we should just... Let's just not listen to what he said, Thomas Jefferson. In questions of power, let no more be heard of confidence in man, but bind him down from mischief by the chains of our Constitution. Read it again. In questions of power, let no more be heard of confidence in man, 
but bind him down from mischief by the chains of the Constitution. Just today I was reading on X, these people were saying, what's this thing about 61 votes to pass something in the filibuster? That's the tyranny of the minority. No, that's the nobility and majesty of a divinely inspired Constitution. And for those of you that say, let's get rid of that, just remember, what goes around comes around. So when you remove, when you remove the guardrails to unfettered power, hey, let me tell you, it's going to come right back at you. Let's read it one more time. In questions of power, let no more be heard of confidence in man, but bind him down from mischief by the chains of the Constitution. Benjamin Rush, one of my favorites, started the first medical school in the United States, a doctor with sacred honor. Patriotism is as much a virtue as justice and is as necessary for the support of societies as natural affection is for the support of families. Why am I reading this? I'm reading these because this lost history will inform us today because history is not a straight line. History is not what we think it is. We're told what to think it is by these same elites that are in the dirty dozen. Let's ignore those people and do our own research. Let's see it for ourselves. We've got to find it for ourselves. I'm going to read one more by someone that's relatively obscure, obscure, John Dickinson. Something to read. It's in his new essay on the constitutional power of Great Britain over the colonies in America. Honor, justice, and humanity call upon us to hold and to transmit to our children, he said, prosperity. Prosperity. Honor, justice, and humanity call upon us to hold and transmit to our posterity that liberty which we received from our ancestors. Now listen to this. It is not our duty to leave wealth to our children, but it is our duty to leave liberty to them. No infamy, inequity, or cruelty can exceed our own if we, born and educated in a country of freedom, entitled to its blessings and knowing their value, pusillanimously deserting the post assigned us by divine providence, surrender succeeding generations to a condition of wretchedness from which no human efforts in all probability will be sufficient to extricate them. The experience of all states mournfully demonstrating to us that when arbitrary power has been established over them, even the wisest, wisest and bravest nations that ever flourished have in a few years degenerated into abject and wretched vassals. You know, I feel like reading it one more time. We just don't have time. The writing is so beautiful. I'm mumble mouth with it because the, the words are just so artistic because the words that came through this man were not all his. They were divinely inspired. And there's divine inspiration everywhere. And I like to go out with music because it's a divine inspiration for me. And I want to thank you so much for being here. If you're new, please come back. If you're with this podcast for some period of time, click the like button, leave comments, spread out the material, join us on X, make a community. This is about political action, 
It's about self-governance. It's about a self-development program which brings people up the ladder of life from childhood to agedness so that when the time comes for the end of their lives, they feel that they are resolved, that it's been a life well-lived. That's what comes with self-governance. And part of that for me was learning how to play the violin. So when I see this great violin performance, I want to share it with you. And I want to thank you for joining. Please help us build this community. Please be well. And I look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you very much.